You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are in our fourth week in this Book of Acts series called Neighborhoods to Nations. And that's kind of the way it worked in the Book of Acts. It started with Jerusalem, then went to Samaria, and then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth, and we're at that point where it's starting to spread to what is considered the uttermost parts of the earth in that day and age. The Jesus movement, and it was a movement at first, in response to his death and resurrection, just had explosive growth for the first three centuries. It's a historical fact, and historians ask questions like, why? (laughs) Why did it happen? And historians struggle to find a good reason for this. Honestly, how in the world did Christianity basically dominate the known world at the time in the Mediterranean Roman Empire, right? And they question that. They go like, now wait a minute. The Christians, they were not of the upper class. They were of the lower class to a large extent. There were some middle and upper class people, but um, they had terrible press if there was a press in those days. They had terrible um, PR going on because the Roman elites criticized them. And you can read some of those criticisms and how they mocked Christianity for centuries. And the Jewish religious leaders also rejected it as a, a sect, a break off to traditional religions of the day. And on top of that, they had no buildings. They had no uh, media campaign. They had no marketing strategy. They had no socio-political power. They were misunderstood, maligned, and marginalized time and again. And yet, it exploded over the entire Roman Empire to become the dominant faith. How did it happen? We're finding that out in the book of Acts. We're finding that out. And I think if we become more like the early church in the book of Acts, we too, in our day and age, even with decline in religiosity in the United States, even with the declines and all of the bad press that we can get and all of the issues that are going on and all of those things, we still can see explosive growth of Christianity and a unity that we haven't seen for generations. So today we're finding out what that appeal is. Here, as we look at Acts chapter 8, we're going to find that Christianity was both considered inclusive and exclusive. It was both particular and universal at the same time. And because it was both at the same time, there was some power to that. It's coming from an unlikely source, in an unlikely way, in a, uh, a, a total setup by the Holy Spirit that this encounter even ever happened. It wasn't something that was planned by the apostles or by Philip, who's involved in it, but it was a plan by God that set this in motion. And so we're going to read this in Acts chapter 8. And when we find out um, what happens here, we're going to see how this becomes kind of a case study of what can happen time and again, even today. We start, though, in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26 and going to 40. And now... 
An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he, was baptized, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So a huge reason why Christianity exploded on the scene in the early church, I think, is found in this passage, that it is both universal and particular, inclusive and exclusive. Now, that does sound like a paradox, and maybe it is, but there's power in that paradoxical way that Christianity is in the world, but not of the world. And we're going to see this with the conversion of this man, the Ethiopian eunuch. So we're going to study today the inclusivity of Christianity, the exclusivity of Christianity, and how being both makes all the difference. Okay? So first, inclusivity. Um, why do I say it's inclusive? Because look at who Philip is talking with. It says he's an Ethiopian. That should be a shocker to you at this point in time. Um, basically, um, Philip had to be commanded to go beyond. Now, this is how Acts 20, uh, 8, 27 says, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Ethiopia was in the upper Nile. So upper Nile means south. I know that's kind of weird, but... Uh, we always think up is north, but the upper Nile, because the Nile River runs from south to north, very few large rivers actually do that. And I think the Mackenzie in um, Canada and the Nile, and anybody else know uh, the, Vol the Volta or whatever it is in Russia? That's about it. Other ones run south to north, or, or north to south, or east to west, but not that way. Anyways, so the upper Nile is the far south. So this is um, almost sub-Saharan Africa where this man comes from. So undoubtedly he was a black African. 
And at that time, that area was considered the uttermost parts of the earth. You don't go any farther than that. And beyond that, the man is a eunuch. Now, do, you, do I need to define what eunuch is? No? OK. Well, this is how you get to become a eunuch. OK, I'm not going to go into the medical details. But why, why was it important for him to be a eunuch in the first place? And it's because basically he was part of the monarch's family. She, the queen of Ethiopia had him close by. And therefore, the price you pay for the power and the position of being the treasurer at that time and being in close proximity to the royal family was you were castrated. What a price. There are a lot of people today that pay high prices for positions of power. I'm not sure if it's a physical price like this, but they do. You can't get much difference between two people. Philip is a middle-class Jewish man, and here we have the Ethiopian who is racially different, sexually altered, and considered from the most uttermost parts of the earth at this time. He'd be seen as a barbarian, no matter how much wealth he had, no matter how powerful he had. And by the way, uh, I don't know if you realize this, Jewish men prayed every morning a prayer that either went one of three ways, and I've got them all here. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has ma not made me, and they'd say, a goy, a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Seriously, you can find it. It was a prayer in the first century that most Jewish men prayed every day. Just think about that. Here is Philip, who's meeting someone who is totally opposite of him, who he'd never want to be, but for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And notice how this had to be a divine encounter. The first verse of our text started Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then in verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now why did the spirit have to actually speak to him and say, go over and join the chariot? Because the chariot was moving, right? And here is Philip on foot. Can you imagine the scene? It'd be kind of funny. He's like, hey, uh, um, I hear you reading the book of Acts. Uh, or, or I hear you reading um, the prophet Isaiah. Uh, do you know what you're... He's out of breath trying to keep up with the chariot and the guy. He, do, he doesn't invite him on until verse 31, just a couple of verses later. So he's actually running alongside this chariot trying to ask this man. And the Ethiopian says, uh, join me. I don't understand this. Why did the spirit do this? A Jewish man spending time with an Ethiopian eunuch. This is a totally flipping the script text again in the book of Acts. Luke emphasizes that Philip, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't a coincidence. It was a divine encounter that God set up. And only because God set it up would it have ever happened. So I think we can learn a couple things from this about the inclusivity of Christianity. First of all, that the Spirit of God strongly desires racial barriers between pe people groups being overcome. 
The Spirit moves Christians again and again to break these barriers. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts, this happens time and again. And the rest of the series is dealing with some of these encounters. Next week, it's going to be that we're talking about Cornelius, a Roman centurion. We didn't, we didn't cover it, but right before this chapter, Philip went to the Samaritans. And the Spirit of God comes upon the Samaritans and upon Cornelius and upon this Ethiopian, just as he had on the day of Pentecost, everybody who was gathered in Jerusalem from all the different languages of the world. And we know this, too. The Holy Spirit is not some power, not some force, but actually a person, the third person of the Holy Trinity. So he's not a thing. And as a person, just like any other person, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And you grieve the Holy Spirit when you do not love the things that the Holy Spirit, that God himself loves. You can conclude from this story and from how the Holy Spirit works through the book. In fact, the book of Acts could be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, not Acts of the Apostles. Or it's Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. But in any form, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing this. And it grieves the Holy Spirit of God when Christians of one race would ever exclude or disdain or avoid or ignore those of other races and cultures. That's what the book of Acts is saying again and again, that the Christian church is supposed to be of all races and all cultures at all times. It actually quenches the spirit. It grieves the spirit because that's the trajectory of the spirit, even from the prophets themselves in the Old Testament, was that the spirit would come upon all flesh. We see this especially in the prophet Joel, which comes up in the book of Acts in chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 itself says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days I will pour out my flesh. Notice it says all flesh, not all Jews. Not all the educated. Not all free people. Not just males, but male and free male, poor and wealthy, slave and free, Gentile and Jew. Now, did they understand this? It's written in the prophets time and again, but it didn't sink in. In fact, next week we'll see that it took a vision from God repeated again and again where God speaks to Peter for him to, for the penny to drop, for him to get it, that God shows no partiality. And in this text, it took the Spirit of God himself to move Peter to a certain place at a certain time to meet this Ethiopian in order for him to understand all flesh means all flesh. Second point, the gospel does not belong to one culture more than any other. We all, I tended to grow up thinking, you know, you're either like me or you're stupid. You know, you're either like my culture or something's wrong with you. And if you grow up and understand, you'll, you'll be like me. No, that's not what the text says at all. Over and over again in the book of Acts. So I said the Samaritans before, they get converted. They're geographically close to the Jews, but racially alienated from them. Here in this text, in chapter 8, 
It's an African from the uttermost parts of the earth. Next chapter after this, we're not covering, but you can look it up. It is a Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul himself, who is converted. And the chapter after that, it's the Roman centurion. Do you see what Luke is doing, putting all of these story right after each other? He's placing them all and saying, this is who God's people are about. This is what God wants to do, is to bring all of these individuals together. Shows that there is no language that God prefers over another, no culture over another, no style of music over another, no architecture or nation or time or age over another. There is no culture in which Christianity belongs to more than another. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, says, make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say make Jews of all nations. He doesn't say make Romans of all nations. He doesn't say make Americans of all nations, but disciples of all nations. Do you realize the Bible is sort of in direct conflict with what you've may have learned in college, or you will learn in college. If you take a world religion class, and I teach one, I don't teach it quite this way, but the majority of world religion classes will say this about how religion works. Religion is just an extension of a culture. It is a function of culture. It's the invention of the culture it's in. Every culture needs some glue that holds people together. And what happens is religion spins out stories and myths and the supernatural or whatever to create an identity for that culture in that time. And that's what holds that culture together. Christianity says, no, that's not the way faith actually is to work. And I'm not the only one who says this about Christianity. In fact, um, Laman Sana, a West African convert from Islam to Christianity, he was born in Gambia, raised as a Muslim, is now a Roman Catholic, and he is a professor at Yale University. He wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he states that the strength of Christianity is the fact that it doesn't fit into one specific culture at all. In fact, it's found in every one of them. You are not expected to join a specific type of culture or a specific language or a specific place, but you can be a disciple of Jesus in any culture in this world. I don't know if you realize this, but all other religions in this world, you can just kind of do, if you want to check it out, Google it. Look at the concentration of where the world religions are, and you will find that the majority of world religions, the biggies, are concentrated close to where they were founded by whatever founder. So you'll find that 98% of Hindus actually are in India or near India. 88% of Buddhists are in Southeast Asia. 96% of Muslims are actually connected to or near the Middle East or into Asia nearby. But Christianity, it spread over all the continents. If you break up the circle of Christianity into little slices by continent, you'll find 25% are in Central or South America, 25% are in Africa, 15% are in Asia, 15% are in North America, 20% are in Europe. And you probably go like, oh, I thought they were all in America. No, not at all. 
We're 5% of the world population. Richard Bauckham states this about it. Almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something about it. Indeed, it does say something about it. It does. And Laman Sana, in that book, Whose Religion and Is Christianity, talks about his own country of Gambia and the continent of Africa and how Christianity was translated into that culture and allowed it to be still an African or culture. He said this, he wrote this in his book, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior, so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. I'm not telling you that mission work around the world has always been that good, that didn't bring colonialism with it, or one cultural superiority to another. But when it was translated properly and understood biblically, gospel-centered, you're not expected to have to renounce being an American to become a Christian. What you are is you're a renewed American as a Christian. You don't have to renounce your ethnic heritage you get to be a Christian, a disciple within your heritage. You don't have to renounce your face, race or your family, but you can be re a new human being within your family, within your race, within your culture and time and place. That is how Christianity is inclusive. By the way, I don't know if you realize, but the Coptic church, the Ethiopian Christian church, looks back to this Ethiopian eunuch as its founder. It's the oldest, almost the oldest church in the world. So Christianity is inclusive, but it's also at the same time exclusive. Now, now this point is shorter. Aren't you happy? I don't think I have to go into as much about this. Um, you can see Christianity is making an exclusive claim in this text. You know, when Philip asked, uh, when the Ethiopian asked Philip, who is this prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? Philip didn't do that kind of postmodern thing and say, oh, well, you know, I can't tell you what this text means. You've got to decide what this text means for yourself. What do you read? to it. Tell me how, what is your truth that you gain from No, he didn't do any of that garbage. The text says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Is that great? I would love to have been in that conversation. I wish Luke would have recorded more of this. You know, because he wasn't just talking about any text from the scripture, and he, wasn't, he was talking about one of the most profoundly puzzling texts in the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 53. A very different story than what people expect 
Messiah to be, anyone to be. It isn't a text. You know, most of the time when the world thinks you're going to gain victory, how do you gain victory? You gain it through fighting and winning and winning and winning and finally gaining to the top. You might have to overcome obstacles. You might defy death and all odds against you. Most of our movies, most of our plot lines follow that. But in the end, through grit and struggle, you overcome and you get to the top. And here the text in Isaiah no wonder the Ethiopian was puzzled by it because, no, we see exaltation, victory comes through humiliation, defeat. The way up is down. The way forward is right through a grave being cut off from the land of the living. The way to life is through death. The way to win is to lose everything. That's what Isaiah 53 says. That's a very exclusive claim. It's very different. And the Ethiopian was puzzled by it. You know, every other religious founder, by the way, too, and I've kind of studied them some, you know, um, basically says, here's the way, here's the method. If you follow this path, you'll, gain, you'll get to God. And the kind of the thought is that if you look at kind of a mountain, there's a lot of different paths up to the top peak. It's the same kind of destination, whether you call it moksha or nirvana or paradise or heaven. It's all kind of the same thing. And so there are a lot of people who will say that all religions are basically the same. But then in the founder of Christianity, he doesn't say, here's the way to God. He says, I am the way. I am actually the God who doesn't, you don't have to find God, I'm the God who comes to find you. Now, if you have one religion that says, I am the God who is coming to find you, it's either better than all the others, or it's worse than all the others. Because either the person who's Founding this religion is true, or he's lying to you. So it's an exclusive claim. And it's because of that claim, he gets crucified. And it's through that crucifixion that he becomes the way. It's fascinating, isn't it? And that's how we see how being both inclusive and exclusive makes all the difference. Point C. Now, you've got to ask a question about this text, I think, that you, when you'll find really the power in what's going on in this text. We haven't qu we've touched on it a little, but it's this. Why is this black African, of all things, in this chariot, coming from Jerusalem and reading a text from the prophet Isaiah. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, this is really odd. Who would be doing this and why is he doing it? Do you realize he's traveled thousands of miles and in those days, you know, that took months and months, three or four months to get to, possibly to get to Jerusalem and then three or four months back. Now, you also, like we have said, he is at the top of the heap. He becomes the CFO of all of Ethiopia under the queen. He has reached the pinnacle of power and wealth from what we understand outside of being royalty himself. And yet, the price he's paid. You see, he basically gave up. 
what traditional cultures at that time, every culture I know, would find their identity in, and that is having children, having descendants, having grandchildren, creating kind of a clan, having a future through your children. He gave all of that up. All to gain the power. And now he's traveling a 1,000 miles for months and months, risking possibly his own position. Because how can you be gone for a six-month period of time from your job and expect to have it when you get back? I think he found that climbing to the top was a very lonely place to be. Dissatisfaction. He didn't find what he thought he was going to get. Now, when he got to Jerusalem, so he's searching, he's going like, maybe this is the faith. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is whom I can believe in, this one God. And he comes to Jerusalem after a thousand miles, after months of travel. Do you know what would happen when he got to the temple in Jerusalem? He would have been cut off. Ah, you can't enter. The Levitical law had set up rules of who could and who could not come into God's presence. And some of them seem very odd and strange to us. If you touch a dead corpse, you've got to purify yourself before you come in. If you've got this or that issue. Uh, there is also a Levitical law that said no eunuch can ever enter into the temple, into the presence of God. So he comes all this way only to be turned away. Is that what God really wanted? No wonder when he's reading in the prophet Isaiah and he finds somebody where it says this, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. I can see the eunuch feeling the same for himself. Who can describe his generation? He has none himself, the eunuch, for his life is taken away from the earth. I could see him understanding this passage going like, I wonder, I mean, I could, he could relate to a man who had been abandoned, who had been rejected, who had been dismissed, cut off, marginalized. I wish we had more of what Philip shared. But I can tell you this, when he shared with him about Jesus, he probably said, you know, you may have been rejected from the presence of God at the temple because of Levitical law, but guess what? We all should never come into God's presence. None of us are holy enough. None of us are good enough. We're all broken. We're all disfigured in some way. We are all not what God intended us to be. But Jesus, Jesus takes that all on himself. The one perfect one, the one who could have, who had been in God's presence from eternity, leaves his presence and then loses it all for your sake. No wonder the eunuch found the power in this one person. No wonder he said, what's preventing me from being baptized? You know, all other world religions also tend to um, reaffirm the power structure in their society that already exists. For instance, if you study Hinduism, you'll find the caste system was usually set up, people think, by the Brahmins, who happen to be at the top 
of the caste system. And it was set up to keep everybody in their proper place from generation to generation so society would run smoothly. You study Confucianism and you will find that patriarchy and propriety and social cohesion is the number one rule to keep things in order. But you come to Christianity and you see the script is uh, flipped again and again throughout the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. It's the barren woman whom God says will rejoice. It's an old Abraham who is childless, who will have generation after generation and a whole host of nations. And it's through him, when he has nothing, that God will create everything in his own people. Do you understand how this works again and again? David is the least, ninth out of, uh, of all the sons. He's the runt of the litter, and God still sets him on the throne. Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, says much the same thing when she finds out of all people in Nazareth, the worst place to live in some people's minds, and she being so poor that she would be the mother of the Messiah, sings this song. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Totally flipping the script again and again. Jesus was born poor. He came for outcasts and sinners. Why does this all happen? Why does God keep doing this? So that you and I, so that this Ethiopian knows, he came for you. You don't have to have a certain level of wealth. You don't have to be of a certain social status. You're not closer to God the more money you have. Your IQ does not determine your eternal destiny. None of the things that we rank people on in our world matter, not because those things don't matter here, but so that you and I know he came for me. You don't have to go through an eight-step process to sanctification or follow some eight-fold path or two-step method. You are loved. You are welcomed. You belong. You are forgiven. You are redeemed through this one who was cut off, who lost everything, who died in your place to give you life. That's how Christianity can be both inclusive and exclusive how this only one can welcome every one of us in today and say, you matter the world to me. You matter more. You matter so much, I give my life for you. And it's what I think can still make explosive growth happen in our day and age because it's a message, the gospel, that is still needed for so many people. So just think about this. Let the Spirit speak to you about those Ethiopians who happen to be in their chariots, you know, in your life and mine. They may be busy, they may be going somewhere, but they are empty and they're searching. Take a chance to come alongside of someone who's much different than you. See that God wants to bring all together in one people from all cultures and nations. And that's the great witness of the book of Acts, to build it both locally and globally. It's 
inclusive, it's exclusive, and that's the power that makes the difference. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, this amazing message of how, Lord Jesus, you came for us all. Not in some generic way, but you came as you came for this Ethiopian who was considered as far away geographically, racially, <laughs> culturally. You came for each one of us. We pray, Lord God, that we would be those people like Philip who listen to your spirit, who hear what you have to say, and reach, Lord, to those in our culture, in our time, in our place, in a land that is very plural right now with many people from many places, Lord, that we can witness to the, the, your love, Lord, and your desire to be a people of all cultures, a God of all cultures, Lord, and to gather together a people of all cultures. We pray, Lord God, that you do this work in us here at Thrive. Lord, there are people in our midst. We, uh, we pray that you'd bring your healing presence to them this day. For Evelyn Cardenas and her family with uh, her son uh, and his uh, breaking his leg this week with um, hospitalizations that have happened for Evelyn and others, Lord God. We just pray for your healing there, your presence there. You know what they've all gone through. And we pray, Lord, that we, as the family of God here, their family too, would come alongside. We lift up to you Bill Watson and his family, Lord, and we thank you for the surgery that he went through. And now we pray for the recovery for for him, that you'd bless Chari, his wife, and his children during this time as they also minister to him. We lift up to you Chris Rodriguez and her needs, and we pray, Lord, that you would come alongside of her in her uh, chronic health issues. Lord, for those in our community that we know, thousands of family needing food and are facing economic uncertainty, Lord God, we pray that you would use us, our Thrive uh, by tomorrow, to just be uh, one avenue of your care and mercy. Lord God, for all of these things, as well as for our mission and ministry here, Lord, we ask now as we have been um, in many ways praying and trying to envision what you'd have for us and discern how you want us to be together, the people of God here, that you would truly, um, truly align us with your will and your kingdom purposes. And bless us, Lord, now as we will transition and receive the intimate gift of, that you give us, Lord Jesus, your very self in a profound way. It was for all of us, Lord. <laughs> uh, you became like a leper to the, for the lepers and a eunuch to the eunuchs, one who was cut off. You were outcast for the marginalized. You died for each one of us, Lord, and uh, we thank you for that. And you come to us intimately, Lord, to commune with us, and we pray that we would receive you fully and just celebrate how good you are to us. So bless this time, Lord, and we pray all these things in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.